Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hey, you find me in the kitchen and um, I'm seizing the moment because I've realised it's quiet in here. It's Saturday afternoon and last night we hosted Kit's birthday sleepover. It was a joint party, him and his friend Rory, who he's known since primary. So we had an extra seven teenage boys to find somewhere to sleep. So I basically cleared out the whole of our sitting room floor and then just put six beds, like inflatable beds, all like squished, like on the floor and then two on the sofas and let's face it sleep wasn't really the end of the game I think they maybe got 40 minutes but actually they were really well behaved and really sweet so it was actually really nice and we now don't have any birthdays in the house till April so yeah feel like yay done done a good birthday because teenage birthdays can be a bit tricky but I think kind of got in under the wire I think 14 is probably the last one you can do where they're not really that bothered about the fact they're not drinking maybe 15 I don't know, maybe I'm speaking from my own experience there. I seem to remember everything getting starting to getting a bit curious about booze and boys around 15 onwards. But maybe that's just me. Anyway, I hope you've had a good week. My week where it's been half term here. And it was one of those half terms where I hadn't really planned very much, but it was quite nice actually. Did little bits and bobs. And I have our lovely nanny, Carolina, who's brilliant and when I'm not as busy, like this week, I'd actually kept it really clear. One of the most amazing things about being able to have childcare like that is being able to do things one-on-one with my kids. So I had a day out with Ray. I had a day out with Jessie. 
I took the big two out for lunch one day, just nice things like that. And that's really special. When you've got five kids, it's nice to be able to spend time with them one-on-one. On that note, I just want to say I do, I am aware that the introduction to this podcast, the bit where I said, welcome to Spinning Plates, yada, yada. I know I say it wrong. I know I say I have five kids aged between six months and 16. It was true when I recorded it. It's now grossly misrepresentative of what goes on in this house. My youngest is now four and my eldest is 18. Nearly 19. He's going to gig on his own on Monday. Crazy. Anyway, that's sorry. It's very easy for me to get distracted, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, I do know the intro's wrong and I've said it to my editor, who I'm also married to, and we are aware that we have to re-record that bit and I will get it done. It's just, you know, I just haven't got around to it yet. Anyway, um, I'm in the kitchen. I'm about to cook some supper for the kids. I've decided I've got a really nice book here called Dominique's Kitchen. This woman who's done lots of um, Asian food. So tonight I'm making a few, a noodly thing and a curry thing and a spicy prawn soup thing. Should be tasty, I think. And this week's guest, Claire Hodgson, I think it's a really cosy nice chat. She is someone I met in a very strange way in that we met on stage at Kent Festival where I had learned the choreography that Clara come up with in order to host the Guinness World Record attempt at the most number of people disco dancing at one time. So I turned up on site at Kent Festival, I'd learned my little routine and I met Clara on the stage and there were I think just shy of 600 people all doing exactly the same dance to We Are Family by Sister Sledge in the sunshine with the world's, um, the great Guinness World Record holding biggest disco ball in the world behind us, which is what Camp Festival have. And they did it. And it was amazing because the adjudicators came from Guinness World Record and they were kind of like central casting Guinness World Record holder adjudicators. <clears throat> they turned up in their um, blazers with their Guinness World record uh, badges and briefcases and clipboards and they checked very very keenly that everybody was dancing exactly the same it was all synchronized all within the marks and then yes they announced that uh, that they've got a new world record how brilliant and I was really struck with Claire because I thought she was really joyful and I you know obviously I was intrigued by her who is this disco loving lady excuse me Sorry, <laughs> frog caught my throat. Yeah, so there's a disco-loving lady. And then from that, I started to learn a little bit more about her and how she has an MBE, thanks to setting up um, two inclusive theatre companies, theatre and circus companies, uh, Diverse City and Extraordinary Bodies, both of which encourage people of all abilities, all ages, to get up on stage and do circus skills and theatre, which I think is brilliant. The arts, you know, as with everything, is very much for everybody. And I do think about that a lot. I think about if I had a child who had some sort of challenge or a disability or their body was formed in a way that wasn't the the typical, and I think it's so good to have representation. I can't imagine how it must have been for people to spend really up until pretty much now before they saw anyone other than a typically bodied person on something like Strictly. And when you think about it, it's crazy it's taken so long to show that all sorts of people can dance and and do theatre and do circus. Absolutely. So Claire, she's obviously been flying that flag for a long time now, but it's just really, yeah, nice to see. And she's a lovely woman 
And we spoke about that and we spoke about her teenage daughter, Scarlett. And we also spoke about cold water swimming because she loves swimming in the sea every morning, which I'm always a bit intrigued by because I don't do it. And I've realised actually a lot of my guests do. I've spoken to at least, off the top of my head, I can think of at least five women who start their day with a cold plunge. Am I doing things wrong, guys, by staying warm and dry? I don't think so. But hey, I do understand that it has benefits. Anyway, um, I think it's a very, very good chat to listen to in a cosy kind of way. So if you're not on a run or a commute or listening while you're busy doing something else, go and get a cup of tea because it's very, yeah, it's kind of like all nice and warming. So yeah, unlike the cold sea. See you on the other side. it's really nice to meet you properly and um i wanted to start with the brilliant reason how our paths crossed so we met at camp festival on a very very sunny day participated well i was sort of i don't know what i was doing like cheerleading i guess you were leading a guinness world record attempt the most number of people disco dancing at one time which you succeeded in how did that come to be (laughs) yes um thank goodness we succeeded Uh, it was quite a nerve-wracking day actually because um it's only when I got to it that I thought, and the Guinness Book of Records turned up with their clipboards. I thought I'd focused so much on teaching everyone the dance. I suddenly you know, came into my thing. <laughs> uh, view that, uh, of course, they were adjudicating uh, and we were successful. And the record is for 600 people uh, dancing simultaneously, uh, the world's largest disco dance. Um and it, it came into being because I was creating a show with Cirque Bijou, who I collaborate with, um, for Camp Festival, and it was called Disco Inferno. Um, and I was co-choreographing that. Um, and actually, I got overexcited and put myself in the show as well, uh, which wasn't my intention. <laughs> um, but, um, as we rehearsed, uh, it became clear that I was just dying to be in the show. Uh, <laughs> and my co-choreographer said to me, you could be in it. Um, and so you uh, just shimmying away. Uh, yeah. Like, I was the stage. Yeah. When will they let me join in? <laughs> yeah. and, um, and so I was there doing that. And, and then um, Cam Festival decided they wanted to uh, break this record. And uh, Josie, who runs Camp Festival, said to Billy, it's at Bijou, we'd like to break this record. And Billy said... I know just the person who can do that um, and put me um, in touch with Josie about it. And the reason he thought of me is uh, we actually run a circus company together, but uh, I was a disco dancing champion uh, and uh, in the 1980s, okay, growing well, up. And so, uh, it, yeah, it was a nice full circle at 51 to be breaking the world record. Uh, <laughs> and I grew up disco dancing competitively with my brother and sister uh, and my friend, Sharon, uh, who's still my friend. Um, and we did these disco competitions at weekends and they were really glamorous. Uh, you know, you had multiple costumes. You were part of teams and duos and uh at one point, they brought in trios, which was fantastic because I'm one of three children, so we could practice at home. Oh and uh, you can imagine the outfits, the glitter, um, and um, it was a it was a whole glamorous thing, and and so exciting. And we would drive up on a coach um, from where I grew up, just outside Brighton, to Hammersmith Palais. And for me, it was the 
glamour and excitement. So, yeah, when... Amazing. when they, you're very near Hammersmith Palais now. I know. <laughs> I, we can go and <laughs> can nip start in again. And put a number on my back and, and start competing. So how old were you at this time? What so I would have been in my early teens, and I'm the oldest of three. Uh, early teens, are you, did you say your sister and your brother? Yeah. <laughs> so... Talking on disco. Sorry, I know it's a very serious business, but I'm just picturing it, it in it, real times. Suitcase on the table, my mum, sometimes my dad, mainly my mum. My dad would sit at the competitions and fall asleep. We would be changing <laughs> ourselves. Sleep through disco? He could. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'd have this suitcase open and it would fill up with medals during the day and we would be changing our costumes. And, um Yeah, it was, it was brilliant. And, and of course, it's something that I haven't used as much as I've liked uh, as an adult. And then... The opportunity came to break the world record and um, I actually contacted my brother who, who now lives in Australia. Both my brother and sister work in performing arts as well. Oh, really? Yeah, they do. And um, my brother was recovering. He's still a dancer and choreographer, but he was recovering from a hip replacement, which is common. He's done a lot of disco dancing, clearly. He's, he's done... A, <laughs> he's had a lot of... <laughs> Give me some new hips. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... Uh, I said to him, do you think you could do the choreography uh, while you're doing rehab? So he did the choreography for uh, the world's largest uh, disco dance. Sent a recording of himself. I then learnt it and uh, got in contact with my sister and said, obviously, you'll be taking part and your family, I hope, and they were all up for it. Um, So were they there at the day? They were, and also 30 people from the town where I live. Oh, my goodness. Um, because we had to make a promotional video to get people involved in. So this the one I would have watched with you guys dancing on the beach and everything. Exactly, and wow. um, and what I thought about the promotional uh, video was that it needed to be ordinary people, in that it needed to not be dancers, mm. for people to feel that they could do it. And so I asked uh, people where I lived. You know, other friends with children, the women that I swim with in the morning. Um, people I know in the town and everyone learned the dance and we filmed it on the beach so it was a great thing it was and a great no matter what else you tell me today I'm happy <laughs> my heart is so happy so it was a family affair and um I love the fact your brother's a choreographer like the disco just stayed with him it's just so gorgeous yeah what it, about your sister what does she do now that she's still uh, performing too yeah my sister has um taught 16 to 18 year olds um throughout career um, in performing arts mm. and uh, now she works for a venue um, doing talent developing uh, you know developing career pathways into cool. the creative arts for young people so where did this come from with your family and the disco and the performing arts and everything are there any threads you can see well in family? I think uh, partly where we lived there was a great dance teacher who had a school and you know I sometimes think oh you know, my mum goes, well, it could have been tennis, um, you know, in that we went to the thing that was near us. Mm. And I suppose it, she is and was a great dance teacher. And um, me and my sister went first. And then we used to come home and teach my brother the moves. And um, so we were in the sort of 1970s, late 1970s. And, um, and he would always learn the dances at home. And we had disco records. And then... My mum's friend said, uh, you know, he's a really good dancer. Mm. And my mum was like, oh, yeah, yeah, he is. And uh, 
you should take him as well. And um, my brother has Alf, the three of us had, you know, the most sort of dance career. So Mm. it's good that Auntie Carol spotted that. I'm sure my mum would have uh, as well. But um, I I think my mum and dad, um, my mum's always enjoyed theatre. My mum and dad were teachers. um, And I think we just had great parents who, when we showed an interest in something, would get on it and help us pursue it. And whatever it was, you know, I remember my sister having a period where she wanted to be an archaeologist. My dad would be down with the brushes with her. Yeah. You know, whatever it was that we were into, they helped us give it a go and I suppose we just found the thing that we all really liked and enjoyed and yeah I suppose it's that um encouragement isn't it and and um and I suppose that belief that even if it doesn't become your career and it has become our careers but that you may be about to find the hobby of your life yeah and I think if you've got that passion and it's woven into your work it does kind of that thing of getting you out of bed in the morning and the purpose and all that it's so it's so brilliant isn't it and the fact that you could legitimately do the thing at uh camp festival and actually make sense of everything else you do how nice is that 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 can be part of your world yeah it's like that actually makes complete sense it's not like a out-of-body experience you know yeah so what is it you're getting up to at the moment tell me everything you've got on in the here and now with your work so the here and now is much better than it has been because <laughs> yes, we're back performing we again and um, it's it's pretty exciting time because we're able to do live performance. And um, so I've um, got a company called Diversity, which I founded in 2005 um, and I'm delighted that it still exists and is thriving um, and we develop shows and create work and we also work with young people um, and we're known for our work around inclusion um, which is about including everyone in the performing arts which I can talk more about in a little while and I also um, am the co-artistic director of uh, the UK's only integrated circus company called Extraordinary Bodies which is disabled and non-disabled circus artists working collaboratively together. And so we've got a number of shows that we're up to. And what I'm up to at this moment is I'm working on a show that will open in March next year, which is a musical. And it's um, it's quite a big show. Um, and it's opening on Bristol Old Vic main stage. Wow, um, fantastic venue. It's lovely. It's the oldest theatre in the country, Brisselovic. Ah, so I didn't know that. As a theatre nerd, I get quite excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's a co-production between Extraordinary Bodies and Brisselovic and Theatre Royal Plymouth. And it's a circus show that has songs. Um, it's written by Hattie Naylor and Jamie Bedard. Um, Jamie runs Diversity with me. And uh, the music's going to be by Charles Hazelwood. And... Uh, I think it's going to be an amazing thing. It's a circus in 1933 and it happens over six months and it's based on the true stories of the way in which circuses smuggled disabled people out of the country. Um, And it's a fictional account of real historical events. Um, 
And there's lots in it. There's wire walking, there's circus, there's music. But it's focused on a, a really difficult historical moment. Yeah, so tell me more about that. I don't know about that history. So in, um, in 1933, in July, there was a, a law passed, which was uh, the prevention of hereditary disease. And it was a, a law that the Nazis brought in right at the beginning, uh, which was where they um, began to sterilise disabled people, um, also people living with mental ill health and many other people that they felt were undesirables, but it particularly focused on disabled people. And in our circus, there is a young woman who's learning disabled and a woman of short stature, and they are being targeted by a doctor who is seeking to sterilise them. So this was a, a law that was brought in in Ger Nazi Germany? Yeah, in July of 1933. And our circus is sort of impacted by that law immediately because mm. the circus contains many disabled artists um, and, um, and they are immediately being targeted by the regime. Wow, I had... Um, I do vaguely remember something about that and obviously it follows the Nazi way of thinking about, you know, Aryan rule. But what an extraordinary thing. And I guess circus is already a rich place for that conversation because although that's a very extreme form of it the relationship between circus and you know the sort of victorian idea of paying money to go and look at someone who's you know different and unusual was much more that was part of what circus yeah and that's an uncomfortable bit of history too so you've sort of taken it right to the most sort of uncomfortable extreme point of it but also, I imagine it's also going to be a fantastical show because you've got all these amazing things going on. I mean, is circus something you trained in? Is that why you've ended up working with circus? No, I didn't train in circus at all. I've only been doing circus for the last 10 years since the Olympics. I made a show for the Olympics opening ceremonies, which was for the sailing and windsurfing events. And it was on a beach in Weymouth in Dorset. And it was watched by 11,000 people. And um, that was a combination of the youth theatre that I ran at the time, still run. Many of the people who were there then are still involved. And um, they are mainly young people with disabilities and they were at the centre of this show. Uh, and then there was a circus company, uh, Cirque Bijou, taking part. Um, and they created this amazing circus on the beach. And afterwards... Um, Billy, uh, who runs Cirque Bijou, said to me, uh, we should set up a circus company that profiles disabled artists as well. Mm -hmm. Because through me and my work, Billy had sort of come into contact with many more disabled artists. Um, and um, I said, um, yeah, that's a really good idea. <laughs> and I suppose what I found liberating about working in circus because like you say, circus got really complicated history with disability, is that people who work in circus are really good at assessing risk. And so, you know, one of the things that had happened to me a lot in my career is that people would say things were impossible or too ambitious. People have said that to me a lot about my work um, and said, you know, that, yeah, that's not really... You know, and particularly if you... 
people somehow perceive particularly young people with disabilities as fragile or um but what was brilliant about working in circus is they could properly assess the risk and not mm -hmm. just have a sort of knee-jerk reaction and so we're open to um you know working with people at height and young people working off cranes and things like that um yeah because everyone you know bodies aren't necessarily more risky than other bodies mm. you know that's all a lot of that is sort of constructed ways of thinking yeah you and know. i guess also that thing you're thinking about someone saying that's not possible that you know, actually circus you, know, you can go there and see things where it's like how how has that even developed as a thing it's incredible and you would never yeah. know <laughs> it could be done and it could be done to order at height or you know people standing on top of each other whatever it may be we actually spoke before to um a circus performer it's a whole fascinating world circus wow yeah. <laughs> it's really i i found it like a really amazing um sort of discipline to work in because mm. obviously i'm directing the show so i work with people who are experts who are performers and they know what to do all i have to do is sort of work with them conceptually and mm. and it's always a collaboration and i've learned so much and yeah it's very freeing and circus everyone has their thing that they're good at yeah so unlike dance where you're sort of traditional dance you're often trained to be as similar to other people mm. everyone is trained actually to be different and so there's much more sort of tolerance around different body shapes and difference in general and respect for people being good at their thing mm. and I suppose I really sort of relate to that in terms of inclusion you know like Everyone has their thing. Yeah, yeah, that makes um, that actually makes complete sense. You know, to me. and so, and and circus. You know, people who work in circus are quite you know open minded and can be, you know, they're good at subversion and and so it's sort of it's quite a natural place for disabled artists to be in. Yeah, um, there's lots of positives that. about it, and um, yeah, it was just really good doing the Olympics with a circus company because I began to see what the potential could be. Also, the Olympics full stop, like, what an amazing thing to be part of. It was a very exciting It was an amazing time. time. Yeah. And it was an amazing time for arts and culture. Yeah. Because it was really supported. Um, and there was, uh, there was money put into arts and culture so that we were ready. Yeah. And we really were ready. Um, and we did show some amazing arts and culture with the opening ceremonies for the Olympics and the Paralympics. And, you know, those, those things were like, it's, it's so important to see your identity in terms of your country reflected in, you know, big, mass events where all of us are there. And I've and in terms of diversity, the opening ceremonies were amazing. Really amazing. I think everybody felt that same... Everybody was watching. There was like a sort of surge. I remember just before the Olympics started, there was a bit of cynicism and a bit of sort of weariness about impending. And then as soon as the opening ceremony, like the whole tone just flipped and from then on the olympics paralympics it was just pure excitement and mm. engagement and it was really lovely and like being in i was in london that summer and it was just incredible feeling um went over to the olympic park i watched some of the paralympics actually it was really brilliant atmosphere but so in amongst all this we have your daughter scarlett so how old is she now so she's 13 now. she's 13 so she was quite little when i was doing the olympics um yeah so she was sort of two three yeah, so was she born in 2009? Yeah. Yeah, same as my second boy. Yeah, 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 she was. So I was sort of, in that time, just sort of with my mum, helped a lot, and my partner Tom, and I was sort of crawling back in. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, say calling back in, I was working on an opening ceremony for the Olympics, so maybe that wasn't quite calling back in, but like... <laughs> well, do you remember what was happening when you had her? What stage you were at with everything? Well, I had... Um, it all changed dramatically because diversity had begun and we had an office in London, in Hoxton, and before I had her, you know, I, I, I thought, oh, yeah, it'd be fine. I'll, I'll live in Dorset, where, I, where I'd just moved to, and... And then I'll have this office in London and I'll, I'll just travel. And then, of course, I'd had her for like one week. I'd never had a baby before. And I was like, well, it's completely not going to work. And that was <laughs> And so I sort of, I suppose, organically to suit me, I began to seek opportunities more in where I lived and mm. in the southwest and got rid of the office and just thought, well, if this is going to work, it's going to have to be remote, you know, and... I didn't ever, we haven't ever set up another office since that office went down in 2009. And um, now there's 17 of us that work remotely from home. Okay. And we've always been remote and uh, and work flexibly because I, I sort of built something that suited me. Mm. Um, and obviously it suits lots of other people, you know, parents, but also people living with chronic conditions or um, other things that can work that might not, people might not be able to sort of pitch up in an office. And also, if you live in a rural place, travelling to an office, for an, you can travel for a long time to get to your office. Mm. You know, and I'm really interested as well in being able to sort of recruit um, for people's talent, not their geography. Yeah, I think you we know, can, we're now much better at that full stop, aren't we? Just yeah. looking across them how things can really work. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So when you started diversity back in, you said 2005. Yeah. What was the landscape like then for inclusivity in theatre? Well, different to now. Do you, have you seen a really big yes. shift for the better, I would Yeah, for the better, imagine. for sure. 
I mean, there's always been really trailblazing companies mm-hmm. that we sort of would, you know, are, have absolutely paved the way, like Grey Eye Theatre Company, uh, other long-standing companies who've developed a lot of talent, and and that talent was clearly seen in the opening ceremonies, you know, for the Olympics. Um, but what is really heartening to me is casting this musical at the moment is that um, we're working with a casting director and a lot of deaf and disabled actors are really busy. And that is fantastic and really annoying for me <laughs> but, um, for casting, but it, it's really brilliant. It's a sign of the times, isn't it? Yeah, it's really... It, it's a really changing landscape. It, it's amazing, actually, how quickly things from, I suppose, the time when you were setting that company up, how things can look really dated now when you look back and you think... Like, now, that I love it when in a TV drama there are people with disabilities and it's not commented on at all. It's just... Yeah. They're just them. And I think that's, you know, it's not... It, it, that's exactly, of course, how life works. Yeah. TV didn't always used to, or drama, film, didn't always used to reflect that. Yeah. And actually, the fact that we were sort of blind to that for so long seems quite extraordinary now to me. But it just didn't, you, you just got used to the fact that that wasn't, that was a, a, a formula for how things were presented. Yeah. And there must have been so many people shouting the same message back at that for so long, thinking, why aren't we being listened to? Why is this not changing? You know. Yeah, I think... People um, noticing that. And, and not seeing your reality portrayed in any way, I think that has, whether it's in terms of disability or sexuality or, or race, not to see yourself in culture has a very profound effect, you know, and the effect in reverse of seeing someone like yourself. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's transformative. Yeah, that's so you know. true. And you, and you look, as a child, it's quite instinctive to look for yourself outside yourself, isn't it? Yeah. And so you do take for granted, you know, it's like white woman I've taken for granted that, you know, able-bodied white woman. I see myself, I've seen versions of me throughout all my life reflected, but you do sort of take it for granted then suddenly you'll have this sort of wake-up of like, oh my goodness, what about all the other kids out there that don't see themselves? Yeah, and I think when you're little, you need to see people like you. It's really important to raise your aspirations about what, what you can become, you know, mm. and yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, for me, you know, what one thing that happened to me that was quite important is when I was 18, I went as a dancer on um, this project and I met my friend Jamie, who I still run the company with now, and Jamie is a disabled artist. And at the time, we were both young and neither of us yet had careers in performing arts. And Jamie had started a career as a social worker, um, as a man who just recently graduated and a disabled man nobody had mentioned to him being an actor you know and then we both did this project um with major road theater company and it was amazing big outdoor show um and i think it changed both of our lives we met each other and became friends and and i suppose amazingly we run this company you know you know, I set the company up and in more recent years, Jamie's come on board as, as the co-artistic director with me. Because as soon as I had Scarlett, I sort of thought, I really want to be in shared leadership situations in whatever I'm doing. I don't want to be on my own because it's too stressful. <laughs> um, and, and also, of course, is 
you know, everything's much more successful when I'm not the only leader, <laughs> annoyingly. <laughs> I found, uh, yeah, I'm surprising sure that. True, but I do think there's a lot. I mean, collaborative things just—they're always better. Yeah, I, I like working that way too. The, and it's always more fun, and it, it's much better. Yeah, it's much better. But um, and so, yeah, the joy of running things together. And I suppose that, you know, Jamie, and me. I suppose we've told that story a few times, but I think it was—it's one of those moments that. Um, opened both our eyes. Jamie saw that he could be an actor. And I, I just saw that how the world worked in the way that both through doing that show where there was many disabled performers and, and being friends with Jamie, I just saw how disabled people weren't included mm. uh, in society at a very basic level. And from then on, I always um, worked to include everyone in my work. And, you know, that that I'm probably best known around disability, or disability is the most visible part of that work, but I have commitments, you know, entirely around other identities as well, because I, you know, working in the arts, I want to show the world as it actually is, because mm. that's really important um, for the people who are not being represented, but also because it's really interesting yeah. to hear the stories that are not being routinely told, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I mean, that's the great thing is that, you know, as an artist, you get to tell stories and you can begin to tell your own story, but you can also tell other people's. Yeah. So when you started the company, when you worked, were you actively thinking of it as activism or did it not really, was that not really the way that it was sort of framed, like you were actually trying to change things? Or was it more just that I'm going, I want this company and it's going to be inclusive because that just makes the most sense to me? Um... I suppose what... Uh, Sorry, I know it's quite a hard no, question to answer, good, but I just feel... It's a good question. It's a good question. I suppose it just would show up on where the emphasis is of the objectives of, like, yeah. what you're... You know, is it, like, making people walk away thinking about that or is it just a sort of by the by, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, is it a conversation you're hoping people have when they are involved, if that makes sense? I do it always intentionally. Mm. Like, for example, at Camp Festival, I cast the show... Um, inclusively, so it has mm. people with learning disabilities, it has black artists, it has a drag king. You know, I'm I'm intentionally trying to get people to think about who's on stage by presenting the widest range of people that I can. Um, and I sort of see myself as being part of an ecology of many people who are trying to change things. I think... Yeah, I mean, that is a nice thing to be an activist. I would like to think I'm an activist. But I, I suppose I don't... What, do, I have, do I have to call myself that? I'm always trying to change stuff because there's so much to do. And I suppose it is... Yeah, the things that drive me are to change and make things more equal um, at a basic level. And I guess involved in the arts, arts is all about progressing things too having conversations that progress stuff that's kind of what yeah and I suppose the, the, the bit that's is. got tricky for me is sometimes people have thought that we're just there to campaign and the way that we campaign is by doing the art mm. so the way that we change the world is by making shows because that's what we're good at we can obviously campaign but there's people who are better campaigners in a way we show I always think that in a way what our shows can do is show what the world could be mm. 
And so that's what I'm trying to do is realise and show how the world could be so that people can see it. And so when people come away from, for example, from the new show at the Bristol, Vic, what are you hoping people take home from that, that experience? Oh, well, they, people will be amazed by the whole range of talent that they see, lots of artists that haven't been seen in central roles. Um, they'll think about the fact they haven't seen that many stories that are love stories between a disabled woman and a non-disabled man because the central love story is between a woman of short stature and an average height man. And so I suppose people think, well, haven't I seen more of that? Um, And I think people will think, yeah, that was amazing circus. What music? The music, I know some of the music already, obviously, and... The music is really stunning and there is going to be a big disco track in it because although <laughs> it's set in the 30s, the music is really eclectic. It's sort of punk and folk and um, and disco and, you know, um, so the music doesn't, you know, necessarily sit in that historical period. And I, I suppose people would have seen a real big range of people on stage and also I think people will be alert that... What's happening to disabled people in society at any point is a really big indicator of where that society is at. Um, and to eve what your position is as an ally. So disabled artists and disabled people had a really different journey through the pandemic. Um, and, you know, running shows for us where, you know, we needed to keep both audience, when we first returned, audiences safe and artists on stage safe. Um, There was a lot of language used in the pandemic that separated people into valuable people and less valuable people. And, of course, we're all valuable people. What sort of thing do you mean? Can you give me an example? I suppose that quite often that the way from the beginning, that once things opened up, people never thought about the people that it hadn't opened up for. Oh, I see. yes, yes. So it was, yeah. it was um, well, everyone can be in auditoriums now. Well, what about the people who can't yet be in auditoriums? You know, mm. what, people who are clinically vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in many ways, the pandemic opened up a lot of art through putting a lot of art online, which was brilliant for people who were not able to be in sort of mass gatherings. You know, and just to always think about that not everyone is having the same experience. Um, Very much so. So uh, how do you do that with the teenage daughter? How are you... Because actually, it must be interesting to <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, oh, my goodness. I haven't <laughs> talked about her enough. Well, sorry, no, it's all time. <laughs> so far. Time, yeah. But I suppose I was just thinking, if this is, where, if this is the, the, the view you're having of the world and what you're tuning into, when you have a bring a small person firstly it's like a reset isn't it because then Mm -hmm. if her early childhood is all post the olympics post time actually starting to you know things catching up and things shifting so you're seeing it like how she's seeing it and presumably for her for scarlet's generation the conversation we're having now about inclusivity is going to be hopefully pretty old-fashioned pretty quick i would imagine Mm -hmm. i think very soon we're going to think, why did we spend all that time talking about sexuality and gender and all these things that we spend a lot of time talking about? I just think in the future it's going to be like a conversation of yesteryear. But is that something that you think has changed for her generation and how she's seeing things and 
and how she feels about herself as well. I mean, my word, it's hard to be thinking about, I don't know, how other people are feeling when you're a teenager. It's just all about your feelings, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's lots, isn't it? No, I feel really optimistic about the future in that way, in mm. terms of that these categories won't exist in the same way. And, you know, Scarlett says to me in relaxed way, like, you know, what's their pronoun? You know, uh, you know, language that, you know, it's all... Uh, and, and obviously through my work, she's always been involved with people who are different in different ways. And, yeah, but the whole explosion of people being really clear about their neurodiversity. There's there's so much positive uh, stuff that's happening mm. that, yeah, like you say, that these things that have been like, you know, ways that we describe people will fall away. And it, it, I think in terms of gender and all sorts of, and sexuality, you can see clearly see that it's going to be a very different future that's really exciting. Mm. And... Um, yeah, the, yeah. I suppose being a teenager is about both um, being really in your own world, but it's also a time when you really care about things as well. That's true. You, you, your heart opens a lot to issues, doesn't it? As well. Yeah, um, and that's true. You have, um, but yeah, there's a balance. I, I mean, I, I really, I said to Scarlett the other day that I really love being the mum of a teenager um, because I find it so amazing to be with someone as their becoming an adult like it's just like such a lucky thing to mm. be involved in and you know I just um yeah I, I really like it I, I really like the challenge of it and it's fascinating and I suppose you know thinking back to my you know the house I grew up in my mum and dad were always interested in our friends and and who our friends were I mean probably uh, now that you know Bob that was to work out what was going on but it's always good to know who the friends are a bit but but it was a genuine interest in young people and I feel the same like they're they're really amazing and fascinating and you know the young people I've worked with who work and the youth theatre that we've always run I've always found like the most sort of a big source of energy you know two young men um uh, Dave who's still involved in lots of our work it um, prompted me to do the Olympics opening ceremony because they said, you know, it was running new theatre and they said, oh, the Olympics is coming here. And I said, yes, isn't it great? And they said, well, we'd like to be in the Olympics opening ceremony. And I was like, do you mean the Paralympics or the Olympics? And they said, no, it, it, we'd like to be in an Olympics opening ceremony. They're both, um, they're both disabled young men. And so I, they, and then I, and I sort of, they said, we, you, we should do it, shouldn't we, Claire? And it was like, they really pushed me, like, because they wanted to do it. And um, and then, of course, I thought, what an amazing thing if we can do it. Mm. It'll prove to them and to me that, like, things that seem big are not so big. You can do them. Yeah. Um, and so we set off on that journey, which was really great. But um, yeah. I find young people really amazing. And, uh, yeah, so I suppose I really... I've enjoyed being a mum from the beginning. Like, honestly... I just think, why did I leave it so long? What was I thinking that was so... I don't know what I thought. But, you know, as soon as it happened, I thought, why didn't I do this earlier? It's brilliant. It's like, you know, it's an amazing thing. And and obviously at times it's really overwhelming and there's so much 
to think about and be responsible for and be on the ball about. Um, and I always feel like, and I feel like it in all areas of my life, I'm always like running behind the train. <laughs> but, yeah, particularly coming into these years, and I was thinking that, um, you know, the, the whole sort of lockdown, you know, what it did give me with Scarlett was I was with her in a way as she sort of went into puberty we were locked down and you know we had that whole period where I wasn't traveling and Mm. I've really been with her in a way that I wouldn't have been otherwise and been able to be much more um emotionally connected to what that means for her that I would have done my best but I would have been slightly distracted and I wasn't I was less distracted because I was at home all the time and I feel like that was a really lucky thing. Yeah, that's quite valuable, isn't it? And I guess mm. with what you're doing with your companies, it's something that has... It, it relies so much on you and the people in your team to keep that momentum, to keep that... You know, keep putting the putting your foot on the accelerator for all the projects you want going. I mean, is when you set up a, a company like that, what's the, what's the sort of idea of what you're doing versus the actual day-to-day of how you would even... I don't know what it takes to run a theatre company. Is it... Is it is it a different sort of job than you imagine when you start, if you know what I mean? Does it turn into a different day job? Yeah, I think it's quite a creative job in itself, you know, as much as making shows is. I mean, to be clear, I work with really brilliant people. And I suppose the thing that I didn't know at the beginning that I know now is to find people that are not like me and have really different skills to me. And, you know, you've got to be really clear in setting up a company, the areas that you're weak in. And so you begin to bring in people who are good at that and all of that. And I suppose also the company is successful because there's a really complex mix of brains at work. uh, And that diversity of brains (laughs) really makes things much more well thought out and also challenged and also, you know... But I feel like... um, yeah, the day-to-day, you know, it, obviously running anything requires sort of really systematic and logistics. and But it's also, I always think running a company that works is it is a creative thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, as much as you see the things that are the shows uh, or the projects that we do in communities or the things that's outward-facing, there's this creative organism that lots of people are making happen. Mm. And I think... In our company in Diversity, we've made lots of really creative decisions about how to run a company that suits people, particularly people with caring responsibilities and children. And most of society doesn't uh, value that very much or do much work around that. And I think I feel as proud of that as um, we don't get it perfect and we don't always get it right, but we're we're working on it. And um, I think there's some really obvious things that you can do that, mean that people with children can be really productive but not work 80 hours a week. Did you find that when you'd had Scarlett, it's like you had to kind of think a bit differently about how you approach work? Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I knew I couldn't sort of work in a conventional way. And it never occurred to you to not not work for... It was like you always want to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I worked in different... I had a speed dial that I would turn up and down. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, I think of it like that, that sometimes my dial's right up and sometimes my dial's low down. So 
it's difficult to describe like when people say full-time part-time I'm never really sure like how to no especially if you don't work in a conventional job I actually spoke once to makeup artist called Lisa Eldridge and she described it as going into different lanes of traffic like sometimes you're on the left side side of the middle side of the fast lane depending on what else is going on and what priorities you have at the time I think if you're able to do that and respond to what you need at that time that's quite that's quite good to be able to do that isn't it yeah and I work with really brilliant people who when I'm in a moment where I need to dial down because the rest of my life is you know my caring responsibilities or you know for Scarlett other people are dialing up Mm. um yeah I think we at its best the structure can hold that you know um I've certainly experienced that support and I probably need to work harder and do more to make sure that everyone in the company has that when they need it but I think recognizing that people work at different speeds and that uh, you know as a parent things come out of the blue that you've got regular routines that you know, it can be blown, you know, the dominoes. I always feel like everything's like, oh, today. And then the dominoes, I always think it's like dominoes begin to fall and then you're yeah. like, you're in a totally different day than you thought you you were, you know. Yeah. Um, I remember saying to my mum when Scarlett was little, like, I, I know I can work when I get to work. I just can't work out how to actually get to work at this moment <laughs> because there was like so many like little hurdles to yeah. go over yeah. um you know and I've only got one child and I'm really conscious of that you know like um you know in a situation you know you're in you've got you've got many more people on the um race racing track you know <laughs> like um and everyone's needs different things and but I do think that like solving how to enable women to achieve their potential in work with structures, uh, for work to be different, mm. you know. Um, there's lots of things like, you know, why is the work, the traditional work day, longer than the school day? Yeah. That, that's a really bad idea. You wouldn't design it like that because everyone's got, well, lots of people have three de- three hours at the end of the day with where they haven't got any childcare. Yeah. Or they have to find childcare. Or, you know, so you wouldn't design... You would design things to match. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of things like that that would be... Could be done differently. And, you know, yeah. we've often talked about... Uh, and we, you know, task-based contracts rather than time-based contracts. Like, who cares what time you do your work in? Yeah, it, what works you, for you. You just got to do the tasks. So... Yeah, that's very true, actually. And I think that there's... There's so much now as well. We can see that people can work actually much more effectively if they're, you know, with, with they, you know, there's lots of companies now doing three day weekends and this kind of thing and shorter weeks and changing the hours and people are just getting it done. I think, you know, it's, there's different ways to do it. And you say task based is like a really smart way of doing it. Like, okay, just work when you need to work, but this is what we're doing and this is the time frame. Yeah, and Makes I don't sense, want you it? to report to me or tell me when you're doing your work. Mm. Just do the work because often people say, well, how do you know if people have done their work and it. it I just always think it's really obvious when someone hasn't done their tasks. Mm. Like, you don't need to worry. You don't need to monitor people. Just remove that whole level of monitoring. Yeah. Like, just trust people. If someone can't do their work, it's not often because they're lazy. It's often because other stuff is happening in their lives. Mm. Most people want to do a good job. Yeah. You can just relax on the monitoring fund. Exactly. You know, like, it's a whole level of useless administration. Mm. So, um, <laughs> and also because, obviously, I hate being monitored myself. I don't like I don't like being told what to do and I don't like rules. No. That's that's my major problem actually generally 
in life, but I hate rules and I, I hate, yeah. Well, I, find it, I think the theatre's perfect for you. I you find can... it really <laughs> difficult. Ah. So what's your dream then? What's the next sort of few things you want to do with, with your projects and with your future things that are on the, the things you're trying... Do you work in sort of like working in like a vision of like a five-year or is it more like just as things come your way in conversations? No, we do have, we plan things uh, because often we have to raise the resources to make them happen. So mm. there's often like these sort of timelines and, and, uh, and because everyone needs to get behind the ideas and you've often got to sell the ideas really. Um, so I do know a bit, we'll do this big musical, then I'm going to remount my show Midlife, which is about my menopause. So is this something um, you did in, was it 2020 or before? Yeah, so I did it in 2020. When I say the show is about my menopause, it's also about uh, Jackie and Spicer's menopause, who are also in the show. Um, but the the story of the show is it starts as if it's my one-woman show uh, about my menopause, and they're there um, in different capacities. Um, Spicer is audio describing the show on stage, and Jackie is sign language interpreting it. And then they begin to interrupt me and say, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not our experience. And uh, Spicer begins to speak as a sort of working class gay woman and Jackie speaks as a black woman and they just begin to sort of take it apart. And in that sort of breakdown of the show, I'm then forced to talk about what it's really like, not just a sort of shiny version. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, so we're going to remount that show. I'm going to make, uh, and I look forward to that. We've just been doing some research and development and I think it's a good show and I think it's got lots to say. And I, we, we finished um, performing it at the Barbican and Bristolovic on like the 8th of March, 2020. So we, we, oh, wow. we would have, yeah, little... we got in, but we probably would have toured it from there. Yeah. But, so it's sort of getting back to that. Well, it's a conversation that can keep running, isn't it, that one? It's a... Yeah, and indeed my menopause keeps running, so <laughs> I won't. <laughs> it won't be over uh, uh, before we do the show. But yeah, so I, look, I really look forward to doing that. I, I mean, I, it's also performing, which, although you saw me at festival performing, and mm-hmm. although I'm talking about the mid, that hasn't been my career, it hasn't been performing, it's been directing and... and facilitating. And, and, yeah, and enabling. And then I suppose, I just, I don't know what happened at... 50 or oh, I probably just thought oh it's all about me I'm having my teenage time <laughs> it's all about me well they do say that actually that there's like a, like there's such a you know it's very likely the 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 menopause and that feeling also coincides with your child in a similar bit so you sort of have two of that kind of energy in in one household but yeah <laughs> the thing well I think it's a great idea for a show and I also want to talk to you a little bit about the other show you told me about before we started recording about swim with all yeah. the because we were talking about how you love swimming in the sea every day and then you've met these other women that also swim every day and then have made a how many women was it you were choreographed in the sea um yeah 60 women 60 women yeah that's amazing yeah and you're I, gonna revisit that are you yeah um what well, yes i really hope that we are going to do swim too we did swim this year and um i began swimming in the third lockdown um i live at the seaside in um, Swanage, in Dorset. I've been there. I did a school trip to Swanage. Did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I reckon yep. you probably went to the centre that's just round the corner from my house, actually, because there's one where yeah, <laughs> I, probably. W- I walk past every day hats. that does uh, field, tri- field trips. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a stayover one. We had uh, two nights 
uh, one of the um, memorable things, not specifically to do with Swanage, but someone threw sand at someone else and it went a little bit in a girl's eye. And she like rubbed her eye and it made a little scratch on her eyeball. She was, she's okay. But I've used that ever since as an example to the kids of why they shouldn't throw sand. <laughs> You know when things happen when you're a kid? <laughs> yeah. Like, no, I've seen it. It can scratch your eyeballs. So yeah, don't quite a graphic throw... idea. So they did, yeah, don't throw sand at each other. Um, yeah, no, we had a happy school trip with Mr. Simmons, my uh, my teacher. Um, and I do like the idea of this play because I think, you know, this choreography and all these women swimming, because I do, I am a little bit fascinated by this cold water swimming. I can totally get it. I understand why it's good for you. I just struggle with the concept of actually swimming in the sea. But I do know that it's a good thing to do if you can do it. Yeah, I. It's been a great thing for me. I, I know at this moment it's like you know, um, bracing. It, it's bracing because <laughs> it's December, yeah. and um, and obviously it's become a sort of phenomena in this moment. But mm. it, I just did started to do it because I lived by the sea, and it was the third lockdown, and. I, you know, I just thought, what is going to happen here? Am I going to, is the company going to fall apart? Is everyone going to lose their jobs? It was just, mm. you know, and it was a really hard time with Scar- for Scarlett in the third lockdown. She'd started secondary school and then it's all been taken down. Yeah. And it was just, it was just a really... It was getting quite a bit gruelling, wasn't it, all of that? A really tricky moment. And I thought, God, if I swim every day, maybe. And then I went down there in my wetsuit, met these two women on the beach uh, and they said, what are you wearing a wetsuit for? You can go, in. it's March. And I said, well, because it's really cold. And they were like, you know, we're much older than you and we, we go in in swimsuits. Don't be so ridiculous. Um, what's your number? We'll put it in the water. You shouldn't be swimming on your own anyway. You were to come here at 8 o'clock in the morning. Oh, and um, It's not even at a decent hour. It's no, early. it's 8 o'clock in the morning. Come oh. here at 8 o'clock in the morning. We'll put you in the WhatsApp group and... Um, and get out of your wetsuit, and um, that was that, really. And it was so, it was sort of made me feel like I was in school again, or in the girl guides, in a really good way. Like yeah. I had to report to Joanna and Georgina like an initiation, and yeah, in the morning, yeah. and then I met other women, and um, it's been a brilliant thing. And then I suppose what happened is I, it gave me a social scene, yeah, as well in the beginning of each day women to chat to like brilliant friendship has been like a, such an important thing in my life it's like yeah. I'm making new friends oh it's great How I lovely. love making new friends yeah. and um <laughs> it's you know it's a great thing and it's so underrated it's not talked about enough friendship you I know agree. it's like totally shaped my life friendship you yeah. know the people I've met have totally made the path that I'm on, you know you know what that's so true that those relationships are not given as much space as all that because actually they're kind of the glue and so it's actually you know it's my therapy it's my comedy mm. it's you know it's all of the good stuff like if uh if I didn't have my friends to call and go through or meet up with I think I'd, I'd be potty by now I uh, completely <laughs> I yeah I love my friends I work with lots of them as well and oh, if I don't lovely. work with them I try to put them in shows so mm. that I can work with them Amazing. so that it all fits together because it's more fun and um yeah, I, I think the swimming, they were brilliant. And then I, I would say in the sea, oh, yeah, I work in theatre and we're not working at the moment. And we were making films and doing what we could online, you know, but it was pretty... I suppose I realised how much of a part of my identity it was, which sounds like, you know, obviously I've spent most of my adult life in it, but I realised that it it was part of my soul, like, making 
mm-hmm. and creating things. And um, and I realised how sad it was making me not to do it, you know. Um, and then I swam in the sea with these women and it, it was a lovely thing. And then I met Deborah in the sea because someone said to me, you know, there's some sort of upwards of about 70 women who swim regularly. They're not all there every morning, but it's like a, a relay sort of system, mm. you know. And um, someone said to me, Deborah works in theatre. And I said, does she? Which <laughs> one's Deborah? And then um, I got to talk to Deborah in the sea. And uh, Deborah's, uh, you know, well-known theatre director. And she <coughs> happened to be in Swanage as well at oh, that wow. time for the lockdowns. And we had a chat. And um, and then she just said to me in January this year, because um, I'd sort of made her be my friend as soon as I found out, she, <laughs> I like began to change next to her and <laughs> invite her to the beach hut to change. And uh, she was, uh, it was just fantastic. It was a lovely friendship for me. It is a lovely friendship for me. And um, she said, oh, I wonder if we can make a show with the swimming women for the Jubilee. Oh. And so we did it on um, the longest day, 21st of June. And Deborah made a show, which was, um, we recorded conversations uh, on our phones. So we were all put in pairs, um, sort of 60 of us into, uh, and we recorded conversations. And Deborah then turned that into a script, which the women performed in our theatre in the town. And then I created... Well, Deborah said, first of all, could you create some movement for the show? And I, I thought about it. And then I said to Deborah, I think actually I'd really like to create a choreography with the women in the sea. I think that's an extraordinary thing. How lovely. And uh, fortunately, Deborah thought it was a good idea. I, I thought it was a good idea because I sort of watched those films growing up, you know, the old musicals. Oh, with, yeah. At the Busby Barclays sort of Yeah. Sign. Absolutely. What's all the, the name of that swimmer? What's her name? Esther Williams. Esther Williams. And uh, all of that. And I, that was in my head. And I was like, oh, it'd be so amazing to see middle-aged women doing that sort of thing. Because we're all different types of swimmer. You know, some people are really good swimmers. Mm. I, I wouldn't put myself in that category, although I've got better and much braver. But, um, yeah, so I thought, hmm, I think, you know. And what was amazing is that... and. You know, everyone stood on the beach in front of an audience of 700 people in their swimsuit. Well, we had costumes, beautiful costumes, designed and created by Jeanette, um, who's one of the swimmers. But nobody thought twice about being on... And I think, yeah, it was really amazing message to young women, perhaps in our town, or young people that, as you age, you do feel proud of your body even though it's older and different and... Um, in some ways prouder. Yeah, actually, it's done so much. It's done so much and the things you were hung up about are not such a big deal to you anymore. And you sort of appreciate where you're strong or capable or able to do the things you want to do, like take yourself down to the beach and swim. You yeah. Know, it beca- beca- that's the thing you want it to do and that's what it does for you. Exactly. And that feels great. Exactly, and that sort of focus on what your body can do not what it looks like is sort of like what can it do I also think as you get older it's so important it feels like to keep looking outside yourself and keep open to all those other stories and everybody else's experience of life because as you get into sort of like your 40s 50s 60s some people can start to close off a little bit and they're not they get more sort of like calcified in their thinking but actually the world evolves and if you want to keep 
with it and curious you've got to keep open haven't you so yeah. listening to each other and making those friendships and doing more risky things and all that sort of stuff is sort of all really it's really vital I think to keep you feeling youthful up here yeah <laughs> I no I really agree and I feel like with the swimming women it's because we range from you know probably mid to late 40s through to maybe late 70s that we provide role models for each other in in all directions, you know? That's and, lovely. And so I see women up ahead of me that I think, wow, they're so strong, yeah. you know? And it gives me really uh, great hope about what I might become in the future. And and it was really great to be an artist in my own town where I live because so much of my work sometimes has been about travelling. And yeah. to make work where I live was what well, is really great and um yeah I really enjoyed it and uh, I really love working with the women that I swim with every day yeah um, so and cool. then it was it was it was very popular and um there was uh life-size jellyfish and uh, <laughs> everyone was in the sea and we had amazing costumes um and people you know and I heard this person behind me during the performance go wow, those women can really swim. And uh, I was thinking, well, yes, because they're swimmers. But it's like, yeah, the people were impressive and it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And not to put a damper on things, but I, I'm thinking it's glorious, but I'm also thinking of 13-year-old me watching my mum doing a mat on mass swimming choreography. <laughs> Might not have been quite well. <laughs> I was thinking, what, what's, what's Scarlett's view on it? Is she... Is she inspired by the wing thing? Is she interested in the arts or is it something? And and is it important to you to try and get her to have that excitement about the same things? Well, I think it's... Um, it was always really... I remember when once she was little, she I can't remember what food it was. I think it might have been like something like avocado or something like she was quite tiny and you know trying different foods and she like she couldn't didn't like this food i think it was avocado and uh, i just remember thinking but we like avocado <laughs> and then i thought oh hang on she's not at all me she's a different person and she will really not like things so it was like a funny thing because it was about food but it was like really in my head like no we're not a we we're definitely two people and i think that we are both alike and different, you know. And to Scarlett, to be absolutely clear, set up the WhatsApp group for the women for the swim celebration and ran the WhatsApp group for me for a little while for payment to keep everyone. <laughs> and she, after a while, she said to me, the women just communicate all the time. It's so exhausting. You're <laughs> <laughs> right, Scarlett. So it made me really laugh. Um, but she, yeah, so she often does little bits of jobs for me in projects. How lovely. Um, uh, so that, you know, I can pay her for, she can have some paperwork from me. And, um, yeah, it's that thing of, like, realising that you, you come, you, ha you share a sort of family culture together and, you know, but you're really different as well. And sort of the exciting thing is the ways in which you're different. You know, I mean, there's superficial ways, like she's really tidy and I'm very messy. And sometimes me and Tom get her to tidy up before people come round because <laughs> she's like the only person in our family who can. And, you know, she's really different wow. in that way. And you think... That's great. And, and then I think, she must be like my mum. My mum's tidy. And, you know, and I, I suppose I recognise... As I get older, I see us as a thread, you know, me, my mum, Scarlett, and I 
you know, I can see the threads, some of the threads like the tidiness has missed me out. And I see, you know, I see the ways in which my mum and me are both similar and different. And it's sort of fascinating, but we have, I suppose there's so much we share. And I, you know, I really owe my mum a lot, you know, in so many ways that I never tell her, um, but I do sometimes tell her. But, you know, especially enabling me to work when Scarlett was small and Tom always, Tom is always sort of never says my ideas are too ambitious or too or impossible. He always just says, what do we need to do to make this happen? You know, like he's, you know, um, he's a stage manager, production manager type. He's just like, well... It's all logistics, really. Brilliant. We just got to work out the logistics, and and my mum has been really important in, you know, looking after Scarlett at various moments. She's they're both they're very close to each other, and I think, you know, my dad died when Scarlett was a year old, and that closeness between them is a sort of it's many things. It's it's been an amazing influence on Scarlett that she'll remember all her life. And it also was my mum's rebirth into this new time where she's without my dad. You know, that there's a there was an exchange mm. is the way I would describe it. And, yeah, I, I think having a great mum is a thing. You know, it's really a big thing. So I often think, you know, how, yeah, being a mum is a... You have to wear it lightly and take it seriously at the same time because it's, you realise the older you get. You know, I realise with my mum, I still, my mum can see so many things in perspective in the way that I get too lost in it. And I think particularly getting older, I can see that she can pull out, she can pull out further from the situations and she knows that things will play out in the end Mm. in the right way. And it's a really useful perspective that I often can't because I'm in the, I'm too deep in it. Yeah. Um, and she sees it a bit more and she's really perceptive around, you know, Scarlett and her cousins and she can see how our children are developing. And she's been, you know, as Tom always jokes to me, she's she's a brilliant, you know, ultra qualified grandparent, you know, because she was a reception class teacher. So she actually does know all the stuff that I really don't, like the phonetics and all of that, you know, like... Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that thing of... I definitely see us as a... You know, we're, like, sort of a paper chain of dollies, you know, and mm. we connect to each other and some things come through all of us and some things are different. And, yeah, I think that thing of realising your children are like you but but really different as well is quite exciting. And then I, I suppose I sort of see that things Scarlett's been really into like she's really into animals she's always really cared for her pets and been really interested in them and she does all the work for them herself um you know that's amazing I was never like that as a kid Mm. you know um and I you know I watch the way that she's really deeply she walks a dog every day that's not our dog and she's really deeply interested in animals and I think that's amazing because where did that come from yeah like that that's you know she's brought that into our house entirely in herself you know and yeah people are amazing aren't they because they're born I mean I really believe in nurture a lot 
But there is a sense that people also arrive with like a secret inside them that is coming to life about who they are. Do you know what I mean? Because you think, you look at brothers, you look at siblings and brothers and sisters and you think, oh, but same conditions, but such different people. I know. And actually so much of what you're saying, firstly, I think there's a lot of what you said that's so lovely about the culture of family, but the differences within it. And also I've realised there's a sort of through thread and a lot of what you're talking about is what, if you've got, you know, shared passions with someone and a bond, it might be a friendship or whatever the relationship is, you can sort of take that bit for granted as the foundation, but actually it's the bits where you differ that can really bring the strength to that, to that union, whether it be how family is, how friendship dynamic works, or when you're in a theatre and when you're all working together in a creative and you're all like, well, there's the underlying bit is we all care about the project, got that. But actually, what are we all bringing to the party? And that's that's sort of like a thing that seems to run through a lot of what you've been talking about, but also in actually recognising and then really celebrating and being excited by that, mm-hmm. exciting the differences. And it's so true when you first, especially when you said about, you know, Scarlett eating that avocado and you've been like, but we like avocado. <laughs> it's so true, especially with your first baby so much. All the time, you're like, oh, is this from this person or that person? And you're like, hang on a minute, they're just them. And let's let that bit fall away a little bit and then really be curious about them. And then it's really exciting because there's all this stuff you're like, wow, I never thought of the world that way. But how nice to see it through your eyes. It's really exciting, isn't it? Mm. It's really lovely. Well, I'm excited about your project. I do have one last thing to ask you because I do appreciate about being different with, with your children. But please do tell me that Scarlett does love a bit of disco dancing. I hope that bit has passed down. Yeah, she took <laughs> part in the... Um, disco uh, attempt at festival she was there with her cousin Bertie Uh, she yeah excellent timing Um, (laughs) because obviously uh, one difference I can't bear is dancing out of time so I'm pleased to report (laughs) that she dances completely in time Um, that would be something I would have to I would find very difficult yeah, in a child. Like, <laughs> yeah, you the child of a disco dancing champ and you're classical. <laughs> Out of time. I'd find that. That would be a stretch, I think, for me. I would have to go on an awareness course or something. I'd be like, whoa, they can't dance in time. Um, so, no, she took part. She uh, danced very well as part of it. And it's really funny because when we made that promotional film, uh, she said the night before I was saying, oh, the film, you know, because you're always sort of in a rush. Or, uh, well, I am. You're sort of in the project and you think, and then the film company's saying, so who's going to be inside the glitter ball, the demonstrator? Mm. You know, and I'm saying to Scarlett at home, they want a demonstrator. And she was like, um, well, that should be you, Mum. And I said, well, I, you know, because obviously quite a lot of my work is about enabling people to fulfil their potential. Mm. And um, so I was thinking, is there anyone in the group who could be the person inside this room. And Scarlett was like, no, it should be you, Mum. You should be the demonstrator. And I was like, in one way, obvious. uh, Because there's part of me that goes, yes, I was a disco dancing champion. I will not cock it up. And the other part of me that's like, well, you know, genuinely, I always want to give people opportunities. (laughs) Um, And then she was just like, you know, oh, mum. Don't overthink it. Don't, just, just, just do it. Please just do it. Yeah. And I, she said, 
if someone else does it, they don't know the dance that well. They'll just cock it up and we'll be there forever. Just exactly. do it. So um, that really made me laugh yeah, in yeah. a way. You did a good job. Have you kept any of your disco dance champion outfits, Bella? Um Well, my mum over the years um, <laughs> has slimmed down a lot of our stuff. I mean, obviously, we should be also storing it. Um, I don't think we have any of the costumes. I think they went back into the wild, uh, you oh, know, really? and were given to other children. I probably bought them on eBay by now. <laughs> <laughs> Just going yeah, from, trying to come and have a look at some of my hair ties. Like, there's some. My mum made that in 1983. <laughs> there's some that really shouldn't have gone. I remember fondly a pink, uh, yeah, a pink all in one. I, all in ones. Yeah, um, like, like a unitard type thing. Yeah, can't a, beat it. A, absolutely fantastic, <laughs> really. And um, nowadays, you weren't lying when you talked about glamour. <laughs> no, and we had the swimmers' uh, Christmas disco on Saturday, uh, which was excellent. Oh, that's I, fun. Uh, it was really good. Uh, there was there was four hours of dancing, and actually, um, I I did dance solidly for four hours. Really, that's a yeah. long time. It is a long time, and I hadn't really thought about it until I was saying to this week, to the osteopath, I've got this pain in my left knee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't she, worry, they can replace them too. <laughs> yeah, she was like, what have you been up to? I said, oh, yes, there was Saturday. Yeah. Um, I hope you slipped in lots of songs referring to like like Under the Sea and Rivers yeah. by Lakey Lee and things like that. Yeah, so. there's uh, so many yeah. sea-themed... When yeah. I began to do the... Uh, soundtrack for that show i had such a great time there you go i don't know if there's a job where you can just put together well yeah playlist playlist i suppose that's a dj isn't it yeah okay i won't have to invent that job then maybe i could become that but it's such good brilliant fun finding sea themed yeah uh songs yeah really a thing kept you on the dance floor for four hours you did a good job yeah <laughs> Well, thank you very much, and I can't wait to um, till your new play opens. That sounds amazing as well, the, at the Bristol, and all the other projects as well, midlife and everything. Thank so you very much. To. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you, Sophie. <laughs> See you in a minute, back cosy. How lovely is Claire? And I'm so impressed with all she's done to set that up. I just think when people have got that kind of drive and they just think, I really want to, I feel compelled to make things, leave the world a better place than I found it. I think that's so brilliant. So optimistic. Meanwhile, I've made my paste, which is going to go in my stir fry, sort of hoisin sauce, lime, peanut butter, chilli sauce kind of thing. I'm a bit worried I've made it a bit spicy. Do you think my kids will still eat it? I hope so. Um, and yeah, the rest of my day is quite mellow. Next week, I'm recording another three podcast chats in amongst also getting started with the promotion for my new album stuff. That's exciting. On Wednesday, I'm singing with the BBC Orchestra for something on Radio 2 called The Piano Room. And then the following week, I go off on tour to Europe for the first time in absolutely ages. I can't wait. I'm playing Paris and three gigs in Germany and Amsterdam and Poland and Belgium. Oh, it's going to be so cool. I feel very, very lucky that I get the chance to do that again. I'm very excited. And I've been really thrilled by the response to the new single, Breaking the Circle. So if you're someone that commented on that, thank you very much. I read all the comments and it was really lovely. It's just, it's funny. I always get excited about a new single, but this one I felt like almost like that sort of the way I used to feel in my early like first few singles I ever brought out, like real, I don't mean like nervous, I felt just properly excited, like, woo, get to actually have it out in the world. It's felt really good. I think I do feel quite optimistic overall. I think this album, 
Because it's another one I've done with Ed, I've got that lovely feeling where the success of it is just in the fact that I've managed, I've been able to make it and I'm very proud of it. And then, you know, whatever happens next, I'm quite at peace with it because it's the album I wanted to make. It's a really nice feeling. I don't think I used to have that in the good old days when I was signed to a major label and it was all about getting A-listed on Radio 1. I think that was a lot more pressure. This, I don't feel the pressure. I've got the songs I love to sing live and now I'm introducing some new ones and... This is just another album I've done that I really like. How nice is that? Um, Please don't play this back to me if the album flops. I will be very upset to hear my optimistic little tone. (laughs) Anyway, um, I will love you and leave you. Thanks so much for uh, joining me again today. And uh, I hope whatever you're up to, everything is going all right for you and you're feeling okay and... As I'm saying this, I'm looking out the window and I can see my neighbour's house where they've got a huge magnolia and I can actually see some buds on the tree. That for me is always the sign that spring is on the way. And doesn't spring always feel so welcome? Not long now, guys. All right, see you next week. Lots of love. Bye, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.